today, we go from final girls. What would you say if I told you we could change the ending? To a final boy. He's inside me, and he wants to take me again. And his nightmare on Elm Street, all courtesy of Shudder. Welcome back to another episode of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. The coronavirus pandemic has closed cinemas and forced film festivals to cancel events. And even though some movie theaters are planning to reopen, many people remain hesitant to run out and see a film. The good news in all of this is that a film festival such as Etheria used to take place at a single theater in Hollywood, The Egyptian, and could only accommodate the hundreds of attendees that could fit into the cinema. But because of this pandemic, Etheria is going online and streaming through Shutter starting June 19th and will be available through July 20th. Founded in 2014, Etheria Film Night has been a showcase of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, action, thriller, and dark comedy directed by women. And for an audience that includes producers, managers, showrunners, distributors, and genre fans. Etheria says its goal is to put women directors who want to make genre films and TV in front of the people who want to hire them. Etheria has been hosted by American Cinematheque, which runs the Egyptian theater. But this year, Etheria has programmed two hours of short films that anyone with a Shutter subscription can enjoy, so the audience can be far larger and broader than any of the previous festivals. And that's exciting. It means that even if you live on the opposite side of the continent, you can still see these movies. Also this month, Shudder is showcasing a collection of queer horror for Pride that includes the new documentary Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, as well as other shorts and features. The documentary looks to Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which has been called the gayest horror film ever made, and the impact that had on its star Mark Patton back in 1985. Coming up, I speak with the filmmakers, as well as Mark Patton. But first, I want to provide a quick preview of the Etheria Film Festival. The great thing about a festival of shorts is that there's usually diversity and something for everyone. Here were the highlights for me. My favorite short is Maggie May, a darkly comic tale that begins at a funeral. I think she fell when I was out. I mean, I didn't know what to do, so I just didn't do anything. Well... Sometimes it's, it's better to do nothing. Yeah. Mm. The notion of not doing anything leads to some horrific and deliciously disturbed humor in this well-executed Australian film by Mia Kate Russell. My other top pick also uses humor, but with a gentler touch, and to teach a lesson. Yoko Okamori's Basic Witch carries the subtitle, A Short Comedy About Consent. In this tale, Lily, a witch, prepares a magic pumpkin spice latte that forces her date, Brian, to relive the previous night's events, but from her perspective. Everything okay? Yeah, I just... I could have sworn that that someone just um, touched my shoulder. It was really... That's a weird... That's a... I feel very nervous, um, but also... Ooh, optimistic, you know? A little bit weak in the knees, but my face feels very hot. And my lips feel very warm and wet, and I like it. I, oh, it feels like kissing. Mm-hmm. 
Where am I going? What the hell is... What you are experiencing are all of the conflicting feelings and sensations that I was having last night. <laughs> the comedy is perfectly timed and deftly performed by the two leads, Olivia Castano and Chris O'Brien. Plus, it delivers a message with sly and effective wit. Another pair of solid entries plays off of themes of how invasive or intermingled technology is in our lives, and even perhaps in our deaths. Hello, Ava. Mm. Who said that? I did. I am known as Computer, but close friends refer to me as Bay. Where am I? So bright. You are inside me. What? In my hard drive. Oh. You are dead. Would you like some chocolate? I... chocolate? You don't like chocolate? I was told you liked chocolate. Okay, yeah, I like chocolate. Would you like some? It's dark chocolate with bacon, and it has no calories. How is that possible? Well, you are dead without a body, and this chocolate is technically virtual, so it's just ones and zeros making it taste like chocolate with bacon. Ursula Ellis's Ava in the End explores what death and virtual purgatory might be like and delivers a slick and entertaining sci-fi short, while Taryn O'Neill's Live offers another futuristic tale, but this one about an online live caster. Live. Morning, fuckers. Breakfast of champions. Thanks, Ricos, for the stash. If you want 15% off your next order, use my special code. So, what did you think of the fucking fight? Yeah! Censors. What a bitch. Never met a bitch I didn't want to slap. Delete censors. So, how do you like them bruises? Yeah, I know you do, you sickos. O'Neill also stars in the film, and it delivers a nice punch. Kelly Breslin's Man in the Corner offers horror without comedy, although there is a wicked cleverness to her story of a hot hookup that takes a weird turn when the date becomes a threesome of sorts. Michael. 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 There's someone watching No. The lineup of Etheria shorts is definitely worth checking out on Shudder, starting today and running through July 20th. I need to take one quick break, and then I'll be back with my trio of interviews from Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 
1984, Freddy Krueger, with his razor-fingered glove, became a horror icon attacking teens in their sleep. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. The box office success of Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street prompted an immediate sequel in 1985 called A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Craven was not creatively involved in the project, but New Line Cinema was determined to turn his hit film into a horror franchise. The film attracted audiences, but instead of giving them a final girl facing Freddy, there was a final boy played by Mark Patton. And horror fans didn't know how to react, and they turned their frustration and anger at Patton's character of Jesse, who was accused of screaming like a girl. <laughs> And was given scenes that had a distinctly gay subtext. He's inside me and he wants to take me again. But in 1985, the AIDS pandemic had caused a panic in Hollywood, and being labeled as gay could make it difficult to get roles. So Patton decided to retire from movies and now lives on a farm in Mexico. But the documentary Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, looks back on that film to examine a point in history that could be forgotten. When they talk about the homosexuality of the film, the end of the sentence always is, Mark Patton, an out gay actor in Hollywood. I was not an out gay actor in Hollywood in 1985. I was a 25-year-old young man working very hard to have a career. I'm now a 50-year-old man who's out, and I'm a gay activist. It's a big difference. I speak with co-directors Tyler Jensen and Roman Kimienti about what Freddy's Revenge meant to them and about making the documentary Scream Queen. The interview began with Tyler clapping to give me a sync mark for when I cut the video version of the interview. One, two, three. I can't believe you did that. That makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Roman. And this is Tyler. Hey, everybody. We're the co-directors of Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. Your documentary deals with Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which kind of has this uh, cult following and a bit of an interesting history to it. So before we get into your film, give us a little background on why Nightmare on Elm Street 2 kind of created a stir and a controversy. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was infamous even... When it came out in the 80s, that was the first horror movie that I was brave enough to sit through, and I loved it. But I do remember that all of my peers, all of their older brothers, everyone who was a big horror fan was not a fan of that movie. But no one could really say why other than just, eh, you know, it was, it was, it had gained a reputation for being gay before people even had the terminology for that. So it has had a long history of being ridiculed, being shunned, but at the same time, still being part of one of the biggest franchises in horror. So people couldn't really get away from it. It's always been there. Um, But as the internet grew and as the horror community became more of a presence, there's been a lot of revisiting of that movie. And then Mark took the stage, right? Right. And Mark is Mark Patton, who is the actor in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And this was at a time when slasher films had the final girl. And it was the female character who ended up like facing off the killer and surviving to the end. And in this film, you had instead the final boy. So what about this whole film and about Mark Patton prompted you guys to want to make a documentary? 
Well, I, I found that Mark Patton had come back into the spotlight and was starting to, you know, tease that he had a story to tell. And when I noticed him online, I was surprised at myself that I had forgotten about this fabulous actor who was in a movie that was very impactful for me. And I was just like floored by what I was reading. It was his story about what he experienced and the AIDS scare of the 80s and what happened to him and why he was missing. And as soon as I started to hear that, I thought, this is really important. This is the kind of the kind of project I really want to be involved in. So I approached him. I just, we started speaking about it and it grew like wildfire. It was amazing. And Tyler came on board at that right. point. We met on a, we're both independent um, freelance filmmakers and we met on a job and he, I overheard him talking to the producer on this other project about starting this project about Nightmare on Elm Street 2 with Mark Patton. And without having spoken to him that day, my ears perked up and I said, I don't know what you're about to start, but I'm going to be a part of it and you can't get rid of me. So right. let's work together. But we've always been more outspoken people and especially right. in about our community. And so I feel like being that we were both horror fans and that we were more outspoken, this seemed like the perfect thing to team up on. So at that point, the three of us just knew we had, an, we had an agenda, we had something to say. There was a lot that our community needed to hear that wasn't being spoken about. And I just felt like this brought so many different, this would bring so many different people together. Now, from a perspective today, people looking at the film may not understand what it meant for Mark Patton to be in a film and deal with this sense of that there's the gay subtext to this film, because this is, was at a time of the AIDS epidemic and being a gay actor in Hollywood was very different from what that means today. So what about that whole, what about Mark's story was it that interested you and that you kind of wanted to reveal to everyone? The beautiful thing of our project is that Mark, Roman and I all come from different generations as queer men and it didn't, resonate with me just how impossible this experience was when I started this project. And it wasn't, it wasn't until going through the process of researching and seeing how difficult it would have been to have this happen to you in your career, just starting off in the 1980s. Right, it yeah. was, it didn't make sense to me why you know, the typical Hollywood story that you hear of this, you know, Midwestern boy moving to New York and starting on Broadway and then becoming a feature film star would just disappear after one film. It didn't make sense. Why would you go into hiding? None of that made sense when we started this project. So talking to Mark, listening to his story kind of brought all of that to the forefront. For me, I grew up in the 80s. I saw these movies when they came out. And I know the landscape of that time, what it was like to be a gay person. Um, and so for me, I did understand that, not from Mark's perspective. I didn't lose a bunch of friends, but I had a bunch of friends grow up under the umbrella of that fear. So each of us had a different perspective on this uh, the entire story, but this became something that I had to do 
as my job as a mentor now. So I think that was one thing. We lost so many people during that time that a lot of mentorship was not happening for the younger generation. So it's kind of our job to pick up the mantle and run with it. So I feel like that's what we were trying to do with Scream Queen is reintroduce a point in history that was could potentially get lost if we don't continue that. I did not know that much about Mark himself, and I did not really understand that full context of like why he kind of dropped out and right. I feel like that that's definitely the generational divide, especially for me, was not understanding that those two things were related. And we now love to celebrate this film as being the gayest horror film ever made. And people are really, they like hold on to it very dearly, but that's, that was not possible 30 years ago to have yeah. an out gay horror film and it be celebrated. And the beauty of Nightmare on Elm Street 2 for gay people is that it was their first gay movie that they could enjoy without everyone else knowing that they were enjoying a gay film. And I remember being a closeted teen and just like seeking out these films that I could enjoy that I didn't have to explain to everybody else. If you're a 13 year old renting Call Me By Your Name or Brokeback Mountain, everyone will know. But if you're a 13 year old renting Nightmare on Elm Street 2, they just think you're watching a horror film. And that's, um, I think, the beauty of why this movie is so important to people and why its legacy continues. Yeah, we, like I said, we have a LGBT festival here, Film Out, and they do these monthly screenings and they showed Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And I got to see it with a mostly male gay crowd, which was. <laughs> oh my God, they're so vocal. And <laughs> yes, wonderful. they are. Oh. It, it, so that was a lot of fun. And that experience of sitting in a theater, of watching horror films with your friends when you're younger, was so intoxicating to me in my formative years as being a young filmmaker that like, that's why I gravitated towards horror films. If they were good, you heard it from your audience. They were screaming, mm. they were laughing, they were screaming again, consistently. <laughs> that's how you know you're doing a good job. And yeah, that's why I love the horror genre. Part of the story revolving around that Nightmare on Elm Street sequel was that both the director and the writer seemed to deny the fact that there was any kind of gay subtext in the film. And that was part of kind of, that was part of the problem that Mark had with the film and the aftermath. Right. Um, there definitely was this kind of race to reclaim who gets to take ownership of the new queer cult classic Nightmare on Elm Street 2. For the longest time, those in the creative helm didn't want to own up to the fact. And then once, you know, the tide started turning and being gay was more acceptable, they started to want to claim it as their own again. And I think Mark went on this journey to be like, um, you don't get to change your mind 30 years later and, and reap the rewards of what he had to suffer through. And because this does focus on Mark, there, you actually had to kind of like go and, and create some encounters or to set up some meetings where he 
got to confront some of the people that he worked with and find out if they understood what it was that he was going through at that time. So what was that process like and, and how much did you know before you started the film that you were going to be able to get to these people or were you finding this out kind of as you went along? We were definitely finding it as it was happening. There was no guarantee that anyone would talk to us or even want to be a part of this project. We kind of ambushed our way into conventions where we knew they would be. And we got lucky that everyone was willing to talk to us and gave us all their time and their energy because they I feel were interested they in were interested. story. Absolutely. Yeah. And even the confrontations that happened later in the film were not of our designing. They came organically from the people involved and we were there with the camera mm -hmm. and we were lucky to capture it all. Some of it was like later on, the, the main confrontation in the movie was definitely orchestrated, but it came later. It, it definitely was an evolution to that point. And everyone was, it wasn't hard to convince everybody to do it, which was surprising. I think it, after 30 years, people wanted to have their say and they wanted to lay things to rest, which is nice because a little bit of effort can go a long way, which is sort of the, one of the morals of the story. Um, Mark was very, it was cathartic for him to be able to go on this journey, but it's also very raw. So for him, he was working these things out as they were happening. It wasn't in hindsight, like a lot of documentaries are. So I commend him for being really brave and for trusting us with that, because that was a big one. We could easily exploit the situation as filmmakers. You, I mean, you spend a lot of time with Mark, so how difficult was it to win that trust from him? It wasn't so much difficult as it was just spending the time and being honest. It was our personal time together that really like solidified the trust. And we spent a lot of time together. Um, and he is a very open person. He was open. He was already putting the wheels in motion for this film before I met him. He is a fighter. He wanted to get this out. Um, and I think when I, when we all met each other, we met each other on a level that was like, okay, I, we can see eye to eye on this. So I think that the trust was, we didn't move forward until it was already there. And I do have to, I do, I do think that for a lot of us, since it was, we never knew what was going to happen. You kind of just have to believe in this, the project and in, in each other as it's happening. Mark definitely has a superpower of being very open and very honest with people. And he had the right feeling about us from the start, which allowed this project to come together in the way that it did. He was already on the cover of HIV Magazine before we met him. And he said that it was actually quite surprising that he was only one of like a very small handful of celebrities who were out with HIV. And that, if you think about it, is surprising with the amount of people that are living with it today, that there would only be 50, 50 people, 50 celebrities that had claimed that. That's, that's, I guess it shows that there's still a lot of stigma and it takes a lot of courage. And how do you feel about having your film now on Shudder and being part of this Pride celebration? It's amazing, it's wonderful. And from the beginning, we set out to make a film that would cross the, the divides, 
that would connect horror fans with the queer community, that would connect queers with the horror community, and show, and we had a very unique position because our film had Freddy Krueger at the center that a lot of non-gay people would watch a gay story. Yeah, that was, that was, I was very excited about that because it's very difficult to be able to reach across the aisle like that with a topic like this. Um, but that's the beauty of horror is that it's always, it's been fueled by these sorts of scenarios in our society. And it's unfortunately just been not spoken about as much, but the plights of the oppressed are usually what make for a good horror story, you know? Right. And we're starting to see that more with the black community today. We've got great, great films that have been coming out lately that really are shining a light on that. And I feel like this is also a time for us to be a part of that. And then it also joins hands with different communities as, as we are fighting for inclusion. So the fact that Shudder wants to be all inclusive is gonna make a huge difference, not just for us as gay filmmakers, but our allies that are willing to like st learn what's happened and, and realize that there's a lot more that we can relate to each other on. So I'm really excited for it. And with a documentary film, you're not going in with a script that you're filming. So how much of this narrative got formed in the editing room and, and what kind of a challenge was that? that? That was the challenge. We, it took five years since our first day of shooting to get to a completed state. And it was, we were constantly on the road with Mark going from convention to convention and documenting the story as it unfolded. Because it wasn't just about, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. It was about the 30 years after and what it takes to reclaim your narrative. And that was, that's a hard thing to just script out and shoot. You have to be there as it happens with those conversations, meeting those people. And it wasn't, you know, we had a lot of failed starts trying to put all this together and it wasn't quite working because we had not explained it so that our grandmothers could follow it. We had to really take out our fandom of Nightmare on Elm Street and kind of explain to anyone who's never seen a horror film why this story is important. Here in San Diego, we have a LGBT festival film out, which showcases a lot of queer horror. And it seems like there's been a real uptick in the number of filmmakers that are making queer horror films and that they're going in a lot of very interesting directions. And I'm just not sure how much are you, of that are you guys following as well, in addition to just this one film? I love it. I want more of it. The downside of making this film for the last five years is that I've had to put all of my energy into this. And now that it's done, I get to kind of pick up what I've been missing the last five years. And I'm seeing some incredible stuff. I just saw Killer Unicorn the other night, a, a slasher film set in the Brooklyn drag community, which is hilarious. And I love it. We have, we're working on one that's coming out. Right. Uh, Death Drop Gorgeous. It's going to be a drag queen slasher film, which is absolutely phenomenal. Kiss? Midnight Kiss? Or something? Midnight Kiss on Hulu is really good, too. 
like really well made and unapologetic with their characters. I, I just think that it's, it's, we're kind of in the wild west right now of gay horror um, because we are finding there's more people that do not feel the need to coddle their audience with who their characters are. So that's now creating a new conversation. So I'm not, I'm excited for it. I'm right. not, I don't think we're far enough into it that I can really have anything else to say other than give it to me. Right, <laughs> we're super excited to be part of Shudder's Pride celebration as well with mm -hmm. other queer horror filmmakers. Um, I know that they also have Knife Plus Heart, which came out of France last year, which is gorgeous and beautiful. Um, also, my personal favorite, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, Excellent. is on there, which I <laughs> like to think is the lesbian sister to Freddy's Revenge. And you should all watch both of them back to back. Those goggles, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Drag Queen Slasher, you had me right there. <laughs> yep. It's filthy. <laughs> it's ridiculous. All right. Well, I want to thank you both very much for talking about your film. and. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you, Thank so, you so much, much for having us. Excited. That was Tyler Jensen and Roman Chimienti, co-directors of Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. It was really gay, though. There was a lot of gay in that movie. Oh, there's a lot of subtext in there. It wasn't subtext. It was right there. A lot of gratuitous bulge, which is always appreciated. And the gay bar scene. That winds up in the showers. Towels snapping and Mark Patton's, uh, I mean, he's a scream queen. This is Mark Patton. He screams. He's a super nice guy. He chokes you when you meet him. But yeah, he's more yeah, like yeah. this, like, it's gentle. It's a gentle choke. I don't need to meet him then. <laughs> you don't want yeah. that. You don't need that. After repeated attempts at a Zoom meeting with Mark Patton in Mexico, I finally hooked up with him via Facebook Messenger. I began the interview by asking him about getting the role of Jesse in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Well, I, you know, I had moved, I was a New York actor and I moved to California. And, you know, the, we, you were, the thing you were supposed to do is either get a television series or a lead in a movie, which is what I did with Nightmare on Elm Street. And I was very happy to get it. I liked the movie. I, I enjoyed doing it. But because of some circumstances in regards to the writing and the way the, the movie was presented, it had a, a, a very strong homophobic backlash to it. So I just caught, got caught in that, that storm at that time. And, you know, I was a young person, so, um, and insecure. And it wasn't really great to be a gay actor in the 1980s, especially not 1985, which was really the epicenter of the AIDS uh, uh, drama. And so basically, I let it run me out of show business. And, um, and, and that was it. And then I was, I live on a farm in Mexico, in central Mexico, the Missouri of Mexico, sort of. And uh, I was here for quite some time, 15 years. And I was uh, invited to come back and do a documentary called Never Sleep Again, which reintroduced me into show business after about, I guess, 30 years. Yeah. So, and now we're here talking about this and Scream Queen. So it's kind of full circle. So how did you feel when Tyler and Roman approached you about doing this documentary? 
Well, actually, they didn't approach me about doing the documentary. I'd already started a documentary. Oh, okay. Uh, called There Is No Jesse, yeah. And Roman originally came on as a music consultant. And the the people that I was... Because I, I, uh, I began the... Uh, the documentary myself and because I've been on the road for so long um, signing these autographs and I felt I had made a little plan for myself like a three-year plan I thought well if I'm going to do this um, I thought well I'll do a three-prong thing I'll do this for three years and um, and first year I'll talk about bullying you know the bullying aspect of, of what happened to me and the second year I will talk about uh, homophobia and I'll let these people really get to know me. And then in the third year, also, I, I will talk about that I have AIDS. And, um, and I thought, well, this is great because this is really uh, a place where light doesn't get shined very much in these horror conventions. And as it became, you know, as the ball started rolling, um, they became, you know, really intense events where, you know, I... People would ask me if I'd scream, you know, because I supposedly scream like a girl. And I would say, well, yeah, I, I'll scream, but you have to give me $1,000. And a dollar at a time. So, and I would give the money to the Trevor Project, but then I would make the people come and give me the dollar so they would shake my hand. And I could say things to them like, well, now if you ever hear, you know, about a, a person with AIDS or whatnot, now you know somebody who has it, and that's me. Um, and it was, you know, wonderful. So we got the idea to, to film it and, um, and to, you know, to film a documentary. But it, it wasn't, I mean, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but it, I was working with some people and it just, all of them wanted to do the same, you know, I am Nancy or, you know, never sleep again again. And I was, wasn't at all interested in that. And then Roman came on, as I said, as a music consultant, and really Roman was the one that tied it all together. You know, Tyler came as a second um, uh, cameraman, really, basically. And that's when the three of us formed a partnership, and that's how the movie got made. Because the three of us produced it and funded it completely, except for the crowdfunder. I sometimes call this the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. I mean, it was just like literally... What one didn't have, the other did. And when one person would get down, the other one would pull them through. And it's just, I love them both a lot. So that's how the movie got made. And how far along in this kind of three-year plan that you had did they come on board as the filmmakers on this project? At three and a half years, yeah. Just when I, com yeah, just when I completed what I thought, because I had a very functioning life you know I mean I own an art gallery in Mexico and I'm married and I have a bunch of dogs and I had left show business quite willingly a long time ago and I did I sort of did um, never sleep again for my sister-in-law because the guys that were producing that it took them two years to find me so um, and my sister-in-law, she's like, they've worked so hard, you should at least do it. Because I wouldn't do anything. I mean, I was offered film three years. I turned everything down. And so I kind of did it for Cheryl. And then they said, oh, well, you have, I had two days notice to get there. They flew me to Los Angeles, myself and Hector. And I signed a contract later that day to go on uh, the Comic-Con. 
a thing. And I really didn't know what that was, to be quite honest with you. And like three weeks later, I was in Amsterdam signing autographs. And that's when the plan started formulating. And I just couldn't, like I wrote a book. I wrote a book called There Is No Jesse. Yeah, Jesse's Lost Journals. Because people had asked me the same questions over and over again, and I got bored answering them. So, and, and you know, when you're meeting people like that, you don't want to disillusion them. Like I say in the movie, it's like they're only going to meet you once. And it's a big deal to them. I mean, I, I quickly found out how big a deal this is to horror fans. So I wrote this book, and it was so much fun. I wrote it as status reports. You know, because in the morning I'd write, like, oh, Jesse did this. And it turned into a diary, and I've sold 5,000 copies of it. Um, you know, and it's just, uh, and it's a great template for a, a television series because it's what happens to Jesse during the movie and then what happens after the movie ends. And our lives parallel each other. Mark and Jesse become friends of, of a certain side in the book. And it was really, you know, that, that was really fun. So, uh, and everybody just sort of, the situation with the film was very holistic, right? Uh, and I say this to the boys all the time. It's like we would like be, we were moving forward in faith quite a bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you know film business, and I don't think a lot of people, I'd, you know, I'm, I knew the film business very well. I didn't make, know making a documentary film. And had I known what we were getting into, I would have never, never done it. Because I didn't, you know, I didn't know it was like climbing Mount Everest in a snowstorm, you know. I thought it was the easy thing to do, you know, because, and, um, you know, because I'd never been involved with a real documentary before. So that was, you know, it took us five years to do it. So it was a commitment. And um, I'm super proud of it, you know. I'm just really super, super proud of it. And were you surprised that you were able to get the people that you wanted to talk to to come on camera with you and and because it feels like this is something you've wanted to talk through with them for quite some time so how was that process for you well the cast i'm you know the the cast as far as the cast goes i'm you know by this time i'm i'm very good friends with most of these people um and i'm sure roman and tyler told you that um you know when they came to fort lauderdale we arranged um a convention. I arranged a convention for them all to come to so that we could film them. And we're all used to doing the Nightmare on Elm Street shtick, you know what I mean? So we have our thing where we do it. And um, and it's just by road, and it's a job, and it's fun, and it's theatrical, and everybody knows the part they're playing. Except for when they started shooting the documentary, I think probably they believed, um, you know, it's like, oh, what's it like to play Jesse and all that kind of stuff? And it was, you know, they... Tyler and Roman just went totally off chart, and it's like, what do you think about AIDS? You know, I mean, that was the first question. And uh, did you know Mark has AIDS? And this is love, you know. It's like, and some knew my story and some didn't, you know. And they were all like right in there. I mean, it was like I worked with a phenomenal bunch of people, and even, you know, Jack, who comes off as you know the total dick, and um, excuse my language, but he does. And he was, I mean, he was, but he's been traveling with me now for the last year and he's had quite an epiphany. He actually got, um, he got sent off to 
Amsterdam, I think it was Amsterdam or Sweden or someplace, to do, we were supposed to do a, a, a film festival together. It was a trans film festival. And I was like, you know, Jack, don't go by yourself. You know, he goes, no, I think I'll, I think I'll be just fine, you know. <laughs> so, and you know what he did? And he was. And he, um, you know, I said to him, like, if you get into trouble, just say, I don't understand the language, you'll have to help me. You know, like, navigate the pronouns and all and whatnot. And, but, I mean, it's really been a growing experience. And he said to me, which, of course, we can't put this in the movie because it's over with, but about a year ago, we were out on the road and it was just really contentious. And I just wouldn't travel with him. I just, you know, he just put, he was a little Aspergerish emotionally. And I was like, I can't deal with this. I mean, I've been through this so many times and I just want to ride now. And, but I do love Jack. And then he, his wife took him to a yoga retreat in Yalapa or in Oaxaca or someplace. And I don't know what happened. He got zapped on the head, I guess. Um, but, you know, like last year he came to me and in tears, you know, Jack is 70 years old, 72 years old, in tears and apologized to me and said, you know, I never knew. I never saw you because he identified it to the boy on the bus in the movie. He goes, uh, the boy on the bus was always me, you know, and I was like, and he was like, I didn't realize it was you. And I was like, thank you. Because I, you know, for the first time he saw I was the face of this whole thing and that it wasn't a joke. And as he met people, you know, he would meet the boys on the road who would cry and, and you know, begin to tell him their story. And it's like, thank, it's like, thank you, thank you for being an advocate for gay people. And at first he'd go, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> you know, and that's not, it's not a gay movie, you know. And then finally I said like, to him, I said, you know, whether you like it or not, this is going to be identified as a gay film for history. That's what it is. And you can either get with it or get away from it. But if you're going to get, get away from it, stop doing interviews because you'll ruin your own reputation. And he was like, no, no, I can, I can grow. And he did. And God bless him, he has, really. And I wish we could put a little addendum at the back, you know. And maybe we'll do when we have the extras. Jack's okay. David, on the other hand, I've never spoken to again. And, um, you know, really have no desire to at all. I have no animosity towards him, really, honestly. I didn't then. I mean, that was a very tense situation in the, the film. But um, I, a lot of me had resolved a lot of that long, long time ago. But in the concept of, you know, making a film for five years and telling the story over, a lot of it did, you know, begin to come forward. And when I was... When we were filming, I have to tell you, it was like, um, he seemed so small to me, you know, like a little man. And um, I realized that I've given, given this little man so much power that I'd almost let him destroy my life. And, you know, I'd stood up to much more formidable people than him, you know. And, uh, and the minute I did, I got, that transitioned into... And it's the real epiphany for me. That's when I got mad. And who I got mad at was me. And uh, I realized, you know, in that moment, what I had given away. And it was, and it came down to me like a, a thousand pounds. Because I thought I was okay with that. And then I realized I wasn't.
So. Now, in that time that you had stepped away from Hollywood and weren't making films, were you aware of how some people were embracing this film and how it was kind of um, helping them? Or did you discover that more when you started to go to conventions and actually talk to fans? Um, more that. Uh, with the advent of the internet was really what social media is what blew this whole thing apart, right? Because social media is private. So people would come to me and say, you know, nobody likes this movie, but I like it. That's the thing I hear more than anybody. I know everybody thinks this is the worst movie, but it's my favorite. I hear that a hundred times a day. But what was happening to me is I went to my inner light, you know, the, the, the way I supported myself was as an interior designer. And I worked at the very, very, very highest end of interior design residential. And I was based out of Palm Palm Beach, Florida. And, you know, you see all about Palm Beach right now with the Trumps and whatnot. But I lived in that world. And, um, you know, and I dealt with a lot of very powerful, wealthy people. And I was, a, you know, a project would take like two or three years, right? And dealing with millions of dollars. But at some point, early on, the man would come to me generally and he'd say, he'd have his hand behind his back and he'd go, oh, is it, I heard that you were like, you used to be a movie star, is that true? And he said, is this you? And then they pull out the DVD. And I'd say yes. And he would ask me to sign it for his grandchildren, which I would do. And then the power dynamic completely shifted. I was no longer the employee, I was the boss. Because nobody could figure out how, why anybody would give up being a movie star. And so I, it was a very powerful thing. I mean, the most men who ran Fortune 500 companies would hand me the keys to their, their life because I'd been in this movie. So I knew it was really powerful. And I knew where I really got the power of it mostly was when I decided to, uh, you know, announce the HIV part of my life, my story. And then, you know, I ended up on the cover of The Advocate and in the CNN International News. And I looked and saw that, you know, that all the people that were identified as HIV positive were the same 20 people that had always been HIV positive. You know, it's like Magic Johnson. And, and I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized when I put that glove on and I speak, because, you know, the, the glove is in the Smithsonian, right? My glove is in the Smithsonian in Washington. I mean, this is genuine pop culture royalty, really, if you want to get down to it. Um, and um, I thought, I if I... If I focus the light correctly and I step into it in the right way, uh, with that glove on, people will listen to what I'm saying. And since I had myself as the number one Google search for my name, I thought, you know, you're in a really powerful position here. You can, like, do something with this. Do it. And I really do feel like, you know, on it, between you and I, and you've seen the film, it was a, it, it was a spiritual experience for me the whole thing. And I do believe ultimately in the end, in reality, that I made Nightmare on Elm Street just so I could make Screen Queen. I feel like my destiny was to make Screen Queen, that Nightmare on Elm Street was just something that got put in my way so they could facilitate this conversation. And so I'm really happy with that. I accept that. <laughs> And how do you feel about the film being part of this Shutter showcase for Pride Month? Oh, I'm thrilled. 
you know, I mean, I know this is a new thing for Shutter, you know, so because we've been talking to them for a while. And, um, you know, I don't think when we start when this first started getting chopped as a film, um, you know, I mean, I know I'm not sure you've read some of the reviews, but it's like we've only received one bad review. Um, but when the people at Shutter saw it, they knew what to do with it. And I and they're behind this like 100 percent. And we're behind them 100%. Do you know what I mean? Because this is a great platform. You know, besides the fact that, you know, monetarily we'd like to get our money back and all those kind of things. Um, and we'd like to be successful. The whole mission was to get this in front of as many eyeballs as we possibly could in homes, you know, behind a bowl of popcorn. And Shutter's a great place to do that, you know. I mean, my phone is ringing off the hook today. It has been building up for a week. But by the end of today, I'll have thousands of emails. And, um, you know, and some of them are quite personal, and you feel like you have to answer them. Because uh, uh, I, somebody called me from Nigeria to 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was like, I, I just couldn't answer the phone. I was like, no. I, don't. I mean, but it's plain in Nigeria, so there you go, you know. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time from answering all those emails and those 3 a.m. phone calls, <laughs> too. Uh, oh, it's the, I, I, could, I could have a few more boundaries, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I'm going to have to. Just do you have any it. plans after this to do any more films or, or kind of activism through film? Or are you going to just kind of continue your life in Mexico as you had been? Well, I've learned that one of the biggest lessons I've learned from this experience is when the door opens, walk through it. So I just I just shot a movie. I've shot three or four movies on the on the down low over the last couple of years, and they were just really to see if I could, you know, inhabit this form on screen. You know, I'm not like a young boy anymore. I'm something totally different, and it's a different car to drive. I didn't even really know if I could drive it. You know that kind of acting thing. But I just did a movie in Portland called One Dead Dog, which I'm really proud of. And I play a full-on grown-up adult with children kind of situation. And I was really thrilled with it because it was so much fun. And so people are offering, and I'm, you know, pretty, at this point, I'm pretty, you know, trying to be like, okay, well, I'll do that. My ultimate goal is, like, I had a dream. I had a dream. And, um, I dreamed, you know, and I'll be honest with you, I dreamed I won the Academy Award. And I actually had this dream a long time ago when I was in Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean. I had a dream that all of us, everybody involved in that show, won an Academy Award. And Cher, that was Cher and Kathy Bates, and Kathy Bates was unknown at the time, and Cher was the laughing stock of the world. And, you know, everybody's won their Academy Award except for me. And I thought, oh my God, wouldn't it be wild if I won an Academy Award for a documentary about it? But I don't, I don't really see that in the future. But um, maybe I'll, see, maybe that dream is come as close to true as possible. I and mean, we won, we won a bunch of awards this year. And we're actually eligible for an Academy Award this season, so you never know. But um, you know, I'll just keep saying yeah, you know, because I love, I I love life. I love my life here. I love my dogs, and I love my husband, and I love, you know, I'm the only guero, I'm the only white person for 50 miles where I live. And um, they had to, finally, they showed my movie on a sheet in the park. Um, you know, and now they all want to see Scream Queen. 
So, you know, and it's been translated into Spanish. And we're actually going to show it at the hospital, you know. Um, but I thought it was a little too much for too many people. Uh, but for the HIV patients here in um, where I live, it's a great film. So they're going to do that. And uh, so I'm happy to have this life, but I'm also thrilled to step into New York City and, you know, spend $3,000 on a sweater, too, because I got that side to my personality. But uh, with, co uh, with the virus, it really, you know, I was getting ready to tour Europe uh, right when this, I mean, when they, I was supposed to be in Berlin, Paris, blah, 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 all with Scream Queen, and it all shut down in two days, a year's worth of work. So, and it's all been rebooked, but I, you know, it's, this is giving us all a lot of time to contemplate, you know, what's going on in the world. And also now, you know, for me, um, you know, the thing that's going on with Black Lives Matter right now is, uh, you know, this is, this is it. This is the moment, you know. We're alive in a very special time because something's going to actually happen now. And, um, you know, it is, I, I want to participate in that. Like, there's a girl named Tamika Mallory who I'm just in love with. And she's like the Malcolm X of the uh, Black Lives Matter. She's like just a fabulous orator. She's like Martin Luther King. And, um, you know, that's what I aspire to be. I aspire to be somebody that's filled with spirit that you can stand up and talk to people and you know they're telling the truth. And I have that ability and I'd like to use it just as much as I possibly can for anybody, but very specifically for gay and lesbian people. And especially, you know, kids that are going through that transition from say 13 to 20, where they just, they can't pull the geographic and get away from the things that are destroying them. I have a real burden on my heart for those people. And so I will stay on the phone and I'll answer the phone at three o'clock in the morning. Um, if somebody sends me something that, you know, that rings my bell. You know, there are certain triggers for me that, that those, those emails get answered, those phone calls get answered. Uh, because Brene Brown, who was a person I really love, uh, she always says this thing, you got to dance with the one that brought you. You know, that's the rule. And what brought me to this new fame is bullying, shame, and, you know, young people's lives being destroyed. So if I can step into the breach and help, then I'm going to do it because that's what I'm supposed to do. So, and it's fun. You know, it's mostly 99% of the time now people tell me they love me. They don't call me bad names or anything anymore. That's, that's all in the past. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks. I'm glad we hooked it up. That was Mark Patton, star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and the subject as well as producer of the documentary Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. The documentary will run on Shudder through at least the end of June, and possibly into July. Also, check out the rest of the Queer Horror Collection on Shudder during Pride Month. Thanks for listening to another episode of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. If you enjoy what you hear, please recommend it to a friend. Coming up soon, zombies and black films that matter. And there might even be a point at which those two categories overlap. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.